world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Welcome, operatives, to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, and this is my co-host, Don Chisholm. Yep. Tonight, we're going to be talking about audience expectations, Jack Campbell's The Lost Fleet, Is Hollywood Out of Ideas, and Keeping Your Audience Entertained. We're also going to harp on The Avengers and Batman vs. Superman a whole lot. We're going to talk about Wonder Woman and why Hollywood can't quite seem to get Wonder Woman right. And we're also going to talk about world comic culture a bit. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. So, recently I've been reading a book series called The Lost Fleet by Jack Campbell. Have you ever heard of it before? That one, no, but I'm familiar with him. And he basically writes military sci-fi. Mm-hmm. The best way I would describe The Lost Fleet... Well, The Lost Fleet concept is actually really simple, and I'm not spoiling anything by explaining it. What happens is is that there's two great galactic powers, human powers, that are at war with each other. The, the Alliance basically decides to do a um, surprise strike on the Syndicate's homeworld system. They basically get a, access to kind of like a hyperspace backdoor, and so they use it to like launch this you know Pearl Harbor-type strike on the Syndicate homeworld system so that they can basically you know cripple the enemy defeat them in one blow etc unfortunately it's a trap and so you know once they show up they find the entire enemy fleet waiting for them and basically get the crap kicked out of them and some of them basically escape and the story of the lost fleet is about them wandering around in enemy space trying to get home that's the short version of it okay um there's another element to it where on the way to that system, the Alliance fleet accidentally found a escape pod that from a hundred years before that contained like this soldier who is from like a right from back when the war started because the war's been going on for like a hundred years. Right. And that's our main character. Um, he's kind of thrust into it and he ends up in command of this fleet a hundred years later because most of the command structure is destroyed and he's really the only competent person left. <laughs> And so he ends up with uh, command. Well, one other thing that I want to talk about that um, supposedly in the setting, the idea is because there's been a hundred years of war, a lot of a lot of military protocol have been lost. Okay, because okay? the idea is is that they're constantly churning out new troopers in the old-fashioned way. They're not cloning them, um, and these new troopers are being trained by people who have, are also new troopers because the old ones are dying so fast. So they've lost most of the skills for spaceship combat and running a fleet and military procedure and protocol hmm. that our hero has. That's what gives him the great advantage. But the incredibly annoying thing, every character except our main hero acts like they're 12 years old. <laughs> okay. The best way to describe it is, imagine if our seasoned, like, American hero got put in charge of an entire fleet of 200 ships 
crewed by you know Japanese teen anime characters. <laughs> oh, irresponsible Captain Tyler. Yeah, well, except he was the irresponsible one. The rest of the people around him were actually fairly competent. It's actually kind of the reverse. Oh, okay, the original Gundam. Kind of. Yeah, you're right. That would be Bright Noah yep. and everyone else. You're, you're Exactly. Except imagine if the entire fleet was like that. Oh. And Bright was the only adult in the entire fleet. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of an interesting take on things. It is an interesting take on things. The weirder thing being that some of these characters are in their 30s or 40s. They're not actually teenagers. They just all act like it. Well, okay, yeah. And I think it was done that way both to show the, you know, kind of degeneration of society because of the constant war. Mm -hmm. And it was also done as a way to generate drama for the story. I mean, for the most part, it's one of those stories where it's the hero and his challenges are coming from the fleet themselves, his own fleet, not so much from the enemy. Right. We all, we get almost no enemy characters at all. Hmm. Even in the first two novels, there are, I don't, I think there's like one named enemy character who's like one of the main bad guys. And you see him very briefly at the beginning of the first book. And then that's it. You never see him again. Presumably we will. There are six books. Presumably we'll see him again before the end of the six book series. But it's a little odd that way. So most of the drama is being generated within the fleet itself of him having to deal with all these idiots. <laughs> okay, it's interesting. It's an interesting take, but right now I'm about to start reading something else because I need to take a break from just the sheer amount of drama that's going on in it, which is quite a bit. Like I said, most of the most of the people around him are complete idiots. Huh. They get they get better as the story goes on, but it's like they're a bunch of like uh yeah, they're like a bunch of 13, 14, 15 year olds. And that's emotionally and that that's how they behave. I was gonna say behavior wise, that's not necessarily all that different from the actual military, but <laughs> Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's very, very true. But um and it is something that I think a lot of people um have had problems with though. I've been reading reviews of the books and the a lot of people have actually either stopped at the first book or couldn't get through the first book just because, to make a quote, these characters are all a bunch of goddamn kids, right. end quote. <laughs> and it gets on some people's nerves, which is a shame because the books themselves are probably some of the best written space combat stuff I've ever read. Like, the author is really, really talented. This might come from the fact that he's an actual Navy weapons officer, I think he was. That would also in his... probably explain why he uh, portrays the military as like a bunch of adolescents. That's true. You get so bored. <laughs> yes, yeah. And anyway, to continue, one of the reasons I bring that book up, besides the fact that, you know, that writing all the characters as children is kind of annoying, I think he's doing it because of his skill level, not because he's actually portraying the military that way on purpose, but it's kind of hard to tell, is that most of the book breaks the classic writing rule of show, don't tell, because, oh my God, does he tell. He tells everything, every little detail. There are no discussions. There's no subtlety. There's no insinuating anything. There's no subtle maneuvers. No, no, This he just tells you everything that's happening. It's like this constant narrator that's describing every last detail <laughs> excruciating detail 
Okay. Which for spaceship combat works, but I know that's also something that turns a lot of readers off. Yeah. Because readers these days have become more used to a more showy, more cinematic style. For writing? And for reading, yeah. Okay. This is something that I find, if you read reviews of books, uh, you'll find that there are many people who don't like books partly because they've gotten used to a, we'll call it a lighter style where it's more dialogue focused. Right. Because dialogue reads faster than narrative does, right. than exposition does. And because of that, people tend to prefer dialogue-heavy books over narrative-heavy books, for the most part. If the narration is done well, such as uh, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones has a lot of exposition, and that's okay because he does it pretty well. He's pretty good at telling you that kind of stuff. It does get a little dry sometimes because he almost reaches Tolkien levels <laughs> of background about all of these characters and where they're from and all their family units and all their connections, etc. Because Game of Thrones, of course, is like, you know, all clans that war with each other. Right. But he keeps the, the whole thing character focused, even when he's telling it for the most part. And I think that's something that readers can accept. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, is that modern books tend to actually have a very, yeah, very showy style where they try to show everything. Right. And the whole show-don't-tell idea has become almost dogma, I've noticed, hmm. among modern writers. It was originally intended to be a um, guideline because the whole point was you want your writers to be balancing out show and tell. You want them showing some things and telling some things and to try to keep them in balance. But many young writers tend to overwrite. They tend to put too much tell and not enough show. Hmm. And so that's a common problem. And so they came up with this show-don't-tell guideline, but for a lot of writers, it's turned into almost a maxim. Like, I've even seen movie and TV show reviews where people will be like, oh, there's too much telling here. They're breaking the show-don't-tell rule. Right. It's like, well, hold on. This is a movie or TV show. That's not really a problem here. Well, see, I would kind of disagree, though. Okay, why? Well, I find it ironic that novels are going more the show route because mm -hmm. when you look at movies and tv shows there's right? a lot of exposition like mm -hmm. there's always a scene where a character comes in and explains what's going on and it's because like a lot of movies and tv shows are really bad at naturally revealing what's going on and how things work well it depends on the kind of show um, if we're talking about, say, a procedural, like a you know, CSI or NCIS or Castle or Murdoch Mysteries or something like that, everything is really about the mystery plot that's going on anyway. And the characters are just there to kind of narrate you through that story. Right. So there's often some character, but for the most part, they're giving you blocks of information. They're just doing it in a more character way i guess you could say ish. the characters are there to, yeah exactly <laughs> ish they're there to filter the information to us in an interesting way right in theory where in theory well okay yeah <laughs> well you've been you've been watching uh oh what is it csi all 50 um, of them no. i think they're actually only up to five <laughs> unless you're talking episodes in which case i'm sure they've reached 500 by now yeah easy exactly so on those shows, yes, the the characters tend to be, we'll call them, organic elements of the plot. Right. Who are just there to pass on information to the audience. 
in preferably some quirky way, filtered through their particular character quirks or types or something like that. Well, see, I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking all the uh, superhero movies. Okay. That, oh yeah. Ho- yeah, them too. Holy crap! Are they talky? Yes, that's true. And and there's always, always, always like scene after scene where somebody's explaining something. The 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 first Avengers movie was terrible for that because most of the movies just people sitting around talking. That's true. And they're explaining stuff for the audience's sake to characters who already know. And then you, yeah. And then you get scenes like uh, the last Superman movie where he spends I don't know felt like four hours with Space Father who's explaining the whole history of everything. And the sad part is we watched half of that at the beginning of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was one of that movie's many problems. Yeah. Well, that was the main one. It was boring and it was boring because of stuff like that and watching Superman schlub his way across, you know, low paying job to low paying job. Exactly. I mean, it's not like we're there to watch, you know, Superman do stuff. We're obviously here to watch Clark Kent become a fisherman. Yeah. You know, participate in the deadliest catch. Yeah, and wait tables and stuff. That's exactly. Oh yeah, that's totally why we're there. <laughs> How Bart Simpson put that? I just like when he hits things. Well, exactly. <laughs> little more action, little less. Well, then again, I mean, they kind of had to do that to make up for the amount of money they spent on the disaster porn at the end of the film. Yeah, but the thing is, they all do that. This is true. That's really not an excuse anymore, is it? No, and and, and then that goes with um, one of the things I find weird about, uh, we'll call them the dedicated audiences for like the superhero mm-hmm. films, mm-hmm. is I don't know why they'll like one and not the other. Like everybody hated the last Superman, and they, they talked about that, about how the end was like overblown and it was grim and blah, blah. But the first Avengers movie was exactly the same. It had almost the exact same scene at the end. This is true. Except the Avengers film. Okay. The Avengers film technically showed a whole lot of people dying. Right. Because there's the scene where the giant space cyber whale shows up. Yep. And you're watching dozens of people in the office as this thing's a few floors down wrecking the facade of the building. Yep. Yeah, those people are all dead now because that whole end would just slide off. <laughs> yes. That's true. There were lots of implied deaths in the Avengers. Mm-hmm. However, I would say that in the Superman movie, there were many more implied deaths, like pretty much the entire half the city, really. Well, and and again, that's what I I I say. I don't understand why mm-hmm. for 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 the dedicated audience, that was a problem in Superman, but not Avengers. I think the main problem with Superman was simply that they felt that that wasn't Superman. Right. I mean, Superman's supposed to be the guy who would literally stand there and get the crap beat out of him rather than let those people be hurt. Right. Superman's the guy who would do anything in his power to lure Zod and friends away from the city so that those people didn't get hurt. Right. He wouldn't engage them in the city unless he had absolutely no choice. Well, in theory, but every comic book ever, that's what happens because then you get the cool property damage scene. Well, yeah, that's true. Superhero movies, especially on Superman's scale, are kind of like Godzilla movies. Right. We're really there to watch like buildings get blown up and Superman get knocked through you know, offices and stuff. Right. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But in theory, he's not supposed to do that. Well, yeah, and that's, again, the uh, the kind of a sublimated tell-don't-show. 
right that um audiences get climatized to certain Mm -hmm. ideas superheroes are one of them too because they kind of they get you when you're young Mm -hmm. and then the ideas get imprinted on you and that's why you don't ask how come everybody's poor in metropolis because nobody can afford insurance that's a good one. I hadn't thought of that one. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, imagine what the deductibles are. Holy crap. But but well, I would imagine supervillain is on the insurance <laughs> policy probably. Act and actually, so act of god and act of zod. <laughs> thank you, thank you folks. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Try the veal. <laughs> but it's, but yeah, it's 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 true and this is the kind of thing uh it's the same idea to, to hack on Superman. Go right ahead. Superman's tough. He can take it. <laughs> but the idea that nobody asks, well, how come the greatest reporter in the city can't recognize him when he puts glasses on? Because you're climatized at a young age. It's not something you question. Right. Well, apparently Clark Kent or Superman is a really good actor. That's all I have to say. Well, I remember the uh, the DC Heroes role-playing game when mm-hmm. when they did, uh, they did uh, Clark Kent's glasses. And they, right. they they gave it, they had Cling 2, Body 4, Illusion 185. <laughs> oh my god! So... They're, the, they're the greatest illusion device in the history of mankind. And they, and they certainly see, because I can only think of one superhero that had a worse disguise than Clark Kent. Okay, who's that? Uh, that was the original Phantom Girl. Okay. From like the Golden Age. Right, I know who Phantom Girl is. Okay, yeah. I don't, but I don't know what her like secret identity was. I've never read in any of her stories. Oh, I've I've read a bunch. They're interesting because it's somebody you can tell didn't want to write superheroes. Okay, so they're detective stories. Right. Okay. And to that end, her secret identity is conspicuous cleavage. Okay. Like her, her only disguise is she like strips down to a teddy. That's that's her only disguise. And it's funny because there's there's a story. Her dad is the, the, the chief of police. Right. And there's a story where her dad and her fiance are kidnapped by villains. Mm-hmm. And she shows up and kicks the hell out of all the bad guys and then takes off, gets dressed, comes back a couple minutes later and like, Oh, you just missed Phantom Girl. Okay, your dad and your fiancé can't recognize you when you put on a shirt. Well, if we're talking about men, that makes absolute <laughs> perfect sense. This moment of sexism brought to you by... <laughs> well, that's not sexism, not exactly. I mean, they're too busy staring at her top, or lack thereof. Well, and it's funny because I suspect from the way they're written, it's because the, the writers just didn't care about the superhero thing and... Somebody said, no, nah, just secret identity. He said, yeah, whatever. But it does. Well, yeah. But but you're oh. you're right. It comes across definitely as <laughs> boobs because, right. because of the way the story that they never recognize her. And her, her costume is nudity like that. You would think, though, that women around her would probably recognize her because they presumably wouldn't be staring at her chest unless it's so huge. Even the women are in a gasp of that chest. Well, there was that cover, as it's often referred to. I will have to go look that up at some point. Yeah, it was yeah, you'll you'll it'll come up. Okay. But it's it's funny, but it's it's again that idea that a lot of readers you don't question it because you're climatized at a young age that superheroes have secret identities and they're usually pretty flimsy, but kids don't question, so that's okay. 
And then when you get older, you just accept it because that idea has been put in your head already. Right. We Yeah, you're right. We just learn it and we just kind of go with it. Yep. We learn it from a young age, just like we learn to read comic books. Remember, reading comic books themselves is actually a skill. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with TV shows and movies and even, like, reading different genres. Mm -hmm. That people don't realize that you get used to certain ideas. And like you said, there's a skill involved because there's different cues that you have to Mm -hmm. learn to pick up on. Right. And people don't realize, like, the, the best best examples from, like, movies or TV, when you hear, dun-dun-dun, you know, something important happened. Right. But you don't... Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. But, yeah, you don't realize you had to learn that that sound cue means that something important happened. Right. Yes, everything is learned. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true, especially with, yeah, audio, sound effects, etc., Many movie sound effects, in fact, are not realistic sound effects, but they're the sound effects we come to associate with those things in movies. The most obvious being gunshots. I remember when I first started doing audio drama, I went looking for gunshot sound effects for my stories and quickly discovered that sounds of real guns being fired sound nothing (laughs) like the sound effects that we're used to hearing and the audience was expecting. Yep. So that was a bit of a problem. By the way, is it Phantom Girl or Phantom Lady? Oh, fa- uh, Phantom Lady, I think, is the original. It should be Phantom Lady is the classic one. Yeah. Um, as, we, as we were talking, I just called up Phantom Girl, and I got a character from the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, okay. Whereas if I put in Phantom Lady, then I get the, the original, like, 40s character. Yeah. In the... Yes... My bad. Uh, revealing was, outfit. I was distracted. Well, I'm looking at the covers now. I should be the one who's distracted, <laughs> not you. But you can see how that's not very much good of a disguise, really. No, you're right. Her disguise is absolutely cleavage. There's no <laughs> question on that. Her disguise is it's a sexy costume, and uh, her hair probably changes a little bit, no. maybe. No, the hair's the same? Okay. They added a thing later on where she had, like, a an anti-flashlight that projected darkness. Okay. But that, again, it became, like, a half-assed plot device more than any kind of serious attempt to disguise her identity. Right. And, again, it felt like somebody somewhere said, Ah, that Green Lantern guy's popular. Give her something like that. And the writers wrote, didn't care, so, you know, whatever. Right, and that's what they chose to do. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because like I said, the stories are, they're detective stories. They're not superhero stories. Well, if the character's only ability is like maybe light martial arts ability and this uh, anti-flashlight, whatever it's called, then yes, I can definitely understand why you would probably mostly just do detective stories with her. Yeah. I mean, you can't exactly have her fighting world-conquering villains. It's not going to go very well. Well, DC did that back in the uh, 70s when they got the rights to, to the, ah, for the, uh, not Fawcett, uh, the company that were putting them out, DC got the rights to them, and that was where they got their, um, a lot of their World War II characters. Right, yes. Well, that's the thing, right? If I remember correctly, the one character in The Watchmen is supposed to be Phantom Lady. Well, the Watchmen were all supposed to be the old Charlton characters. That's Yeah, that's right. Well, they were supposed to be, um, yeah, basically a mix of the Charlton characters and I think some others as well. Fox, because that maybe, company. Okay, it was Fox? I think. 
Okay. If you go look in a lot of the old comics like that, changed hands. Right. Well, yes, they were being passed around, almost like comic books. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be here all week, folks. <laughs> okay, so, yes, I can see that. Oh, so maybe, okay, so it was maybe it was another character similar to Phantom Lady that the one member of the Watchmen was supposed to be. It might have been, because I remember, um, like, Night, Night Owl was supposed to be Blue Beetle. Yes. And, and isn't it, is it Silk Spectre? Yeah. Is the female's name? Yeah. And if I remember right, yeah, I'm not sure who she was supposed to be. And then I think it might have been Phantom Lady. I think I think it might have been. And then um, uh, the comedian was supposed to be the peacemaker. Right. Yes. Yeah, he was. And I forget who the other ones. I think uh, oh, I forget who the other ones were. But the problem was um, when Alan Moore wrote it. Right. Uh, DC was actually use, going to use the the characters they just picked up, so that's why he had to make his uh, whole new thing up on his own. Well, let's see. Moore felt he needed a female hero in the cast and drew inspiration from the comic book heroines such as Black Canary and Phantom Lady yeah. for Silk Spectre. So she is supposed to basically be Phantom Lady for the most part. Yeah. Looking at her, she's really Phantom Lady yeah. for the most part. Yeah. But <laughs> wearing more. <laughs> but yes, wearing more clothes. Ironically enough. <laughs> oh, the 40s. Well, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, as you said, DC decided that we won't actually use these characters. And if at that time they actually weren't that into, I guess, Elseworlds or that kind of stuff, maybe. I'm not sure. So they weren't willing to actually let the characters be used in some alternate world story for whatever weird reason. They wanted to keep them in DC continuity. Yeah. So thus suddenly Alan Moore had to just change their names and designs. Yeah, which they did kinda last minute and And it really shows. Kinda. They're they're pretty yeah. generic, but it works for the story because they're supposed to be ciphers more than characters. That's true. That's true. They are supposed to be well they're supposed to be pulp characters. They're supposed to be a bunch of pulp heroes. Yeah. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And they do work for the story. Yeah. Uh, I actually should read Watchmen again. I haven't actually read it in like 20 years. I have a copy in my <laughs> comic archive somewhere. And I was just talking about it the other day because one of my friend's sons has to read it for one of his classes. Mm -hmm. And it's actually still used very commonly as a book for many pop culture, especially comic book pop culture courses. Watchmen is one of the standard books that they make them read. Which is kind of sad, but... Well, I guess it depends on your point of view. I think the real problem with Watchmen is... It's hokey? And this is, well, besides that, <laughs> is that Watchmen is very much a product of a certain background. Right. By which I mean, to truly appreciate Watchmen, you have to understand what they're parroting, what this is all supposed to represent, both in terms of the time period, of course, the 1980s and how it represents 80s culture, but also how it's a reflection of the old pulp comics. Right. It's one of those things, it's a little bit like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, in the sense that, yes, you can read it straight, and it's not bad, and you'll get something out of it. But if you really wanted to get something out of it, you'd actually have to know who all these people were. Yeah. In the case of Watchmen, you'd have to know what these characters are representing, and what the original characters were like, and how they've been changed, and what their background is. I mean... I'm not saying you have to be an expert on the Blue Beetle or any of them, but you have to at least have some understanding of what he's drawing from to truly appreciate what he's doing with it. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And I think that that context is usually lost. 
on many readers that read uh, The Watchmen. Again, I'm not trying to be some uber nerd who's saying, well, no one can appreciate The Watchmen unless you're a master of like 1940s pulp heroes. I'm not being that comic book uber nerd when I say that. I'm just trying to say that if you want to get the most out of it, that would probably be the, one of the ways to uh, do it. And I think that there's some ideas there that really don't come out unless you understand what he's trying to do. Yeah, I can see that, and I kind of my my problem with with something like the the Watchmen, uh, the Dark Knight Returns comic, I had the same problem with that. They're very good superhero stories, right? But they're just superhero stories. Yes. And at the time they came out, if mm-hmm. if you were were uh, a comic book superhero fan Mm -hmm. who'd read nothing but like say superhero comics for most of your life they would totally blow your mind and they did they blew the minds of many comic book fans back in the day yeah but if you have any kind of i guess real world experience not the phrase Mm -hmm. i want but i can't think of a better one then they're okay Mm -hmm. but like um like the Watchmen, I remember people said was great because it's like a political commentary on superheroes, but it wasn't. Everything in it was very cartoony. Everything in it was very blatant. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was the same thing like the Dark Knight Returns. Everything in it's really, right. really blatant. Um, some of the genuinely questionable bits or some mm-hmm. of the bits that would have caused an actual debate was very much downplayed. Right. Um, like like DC took their, their usual plausible deniability thing. Mm-hmm. Especially when it came to the sex in both of those series. Yep. It's kind of there, but you really have to go looking. Yep. And I think the problem with that is both of them became icons of, um, we'll say, grown-up comic books, but they really aren't. They're adolescent. Right. They're still very adolescent in their own way. They're just a different kind of adolescent. Yeah, like it's 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 literate. Mm-hmm. But it never it never makes that jump to something that I think is would be truly engaging to a to to a grown-up mind. Right. Because it doesn't address grown-up issues. You could say in a lot of ways and this I think would be a fair comparison if you want to talk manga for a moment. The most superhero comics are shown in comics. They're for, say, we'll say, what, 10 to 14-year-olds for the most part. Right. And that's the, kind of their target audience. The Dark Knight Returns and The Watchmen are basically for maybe 16 to 20-year-olds. And that might be pushing it, actually. We'll say closer to 16-year-olds. They're in what the Japanese would call seinen comics, which are basically older teens, younger college student age. Yeah, I could see that. And they're going for that audience, but again, they're still holding back. They're still not truly adult books. Yeah. But they are the closest that we were getting to adult books at the time in a lot of ways, comic-wise. Oh, not at all. From the mainstream. Well, yeah. From the mainstream, from DC they were. Yeah. Um, Marvel was doing their graphic novel series. I don't know where the... I don't know exactly when their Marvel graphic novel series started, where they were putting out like one a month. And some of those did actually get a little more mature. Kind of. Marvel's the, for, for superheroes, Marvel is the company that I think put out what I would say were the only truly mature superhero comics. Right. Because they did Marvels and they did mm-hmm. Damage Control. 
both of which would come in like the nineties, if I remember right. No, Damage Control started late eighties. Damage Control was late eighties, okay. Because it ran in uh, Marvel Fanfare. Okay, okay, I'm aware of the actual their own book that was nineties, but okay, yeah. Uh, and same thing too, like uh, like uh, Marvels was I think was the first one eighty eight or eighty nine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, either way, late eighties, early nineties. Okay, yes. Well, around there. Around they're both from around like nineteen ninety ish, somewhere in that area. Okay, so why would you say those are the first truly adult ones? Well, those were the only ones that looked at superheroes from an adult perspective with adult issues. Okay, with Marvels, I can see your point because the main character, if I remember right, is supposed to be, uh, I think, a middle-aged man, well, a middle-aged reporter, isn't he? He's he's the audience because if you remember, he's a young reporter. Okay, he's the run- during, young one. Okay, during the golden age. Oh, okay. And they're following the Marvel universe. It's Marvels is the Marvel universe from the point of view of the average people. Okay. And if you follow it, they do all the different eras because it starts with. Um, him covering the fight between the Human Torch and the Submariner. Ah, okay. Which is a Golden Age story. Right. Uh, they do Galactus, the uh, wedding of Reed Richards and Sue Storm, which is like a Silver Age thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did uh, the Namor, when Namor mm-hmm. first attacked. Yeah, when the Atlanteans attacked New York, right? Yeah, they did the death of Gwen Stacy, mm-hmm. which was, again, that was more like Bronze Age stuff. Right, right. They did the the coming of the mutants, mm-hmm. and it, again, it was all from the average person point of view, right. And that was why I think that that one I would say is mature, mm-hmm. because it covered the kind of things that an adult in that setting would worry about, right. And that's why I would say Damage Control is mm-hmm. also a mature comic because it details all of the things that a grown-up in that setting would worry about. How do I get to work? They just destroyed this building and it's blocking the road. Well, that was Mm -hmm. because these guys show up, take care of it. Right. That's damage control's job is to fix superhero disasters. And they have their uh, service. You you, you Mm -hmm. can hire them out for different levels of their their service, which is how Mm -hmm. insurance would work in a superhero Mm -hmm. setting. Right. Although, presumably, they would be subcontracted by insurance companies to go in and actually do stuff. No, they there's uh, they have their their own department. Oh, okay. And this is why I say they thought this kind of stuff out because there's the one where they send Albert to collect from Doctor Doom because he's been missing his payments. Right. And that's a brilliant story because that would happen in the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. If Doctor Doom is going to be you know residing in America at certain points, he's going to have to pay for different services and. Mm-hmm. Damage control mm-hmm. would be what you would get for superhero insurance. Right. Because a normal insurance company would go broke. We absolutely they would. Yeah. And and that's absolutely they would. And like I say, those are the kind of things that a grown up thinks about. So wait a sec, you're telling me that for a comic to be mature and for adults, it should doesn't have to be about sex and graphic violence? No, the irony is that's for uh teenagers. Oh my god. I know. I've been thinking about it totally the wrong way. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Yeah, you're right. Adults generally are not quite as focused, quite as focused, I should say. Emphasis on the quite, um, on uh, sex and violence as uh, young people are. 
or if they are, there's there's different things that they focus on, mm. and it's because as a as as a grown up, mm-hmm. you've got experience and your expectation of how things work is different. So that's why you'll get like uh, grown ups will will scoff at the mm-hmm. idea of like the hero saves like the princess and then they get married because. A grown-up's thinking, yeah, and then they have kids, and she's nagging them all the time, and you can't go out and kill the dragon because she wants them to take out the garbage, and blah, blah. Because yep. cause that's an adult mind. Right, yeah. Adults know that that's, yeah, that's kind of life. Mm-hmm. Whereas young people, they're still dreaming about being Superman and flying around and kicking ass. Yep. Yep. And then if you're a teenager and the hormones are kicking in, mm-hmm. that's why, like, slasher flicks... And, mm-hmm. and characters like the Punisher are popular with teenagers because as a teenager with the raging hormones, everything mm-hmm. feels like the end of the world to you. Right, that's true. And everything is amped up. Like, a relationship isn't just, oh, I met this nice person. It's, this is the one that I'll be with forever until Ever. the universe dies. Yeah, exactly. And that, exactly. And that's why um, I hate using the term uh, adult mm-hmm. for stuff because typically... When we slap the adult term on something, by my definition, you're actually referring to something for for teenagers, for like older teenagers, young. Yeah, really, it's we're talking about stuff that's intended for quote unquote older teens. Yeah, and um, because it's usually like the graphic violence and nudity and stuff, which appeals to that because again, everything is super intense when you're that. Actually, age. in writing, a new category has actually appeared. A new yeah, category is the best word for it. Uh, traditionally, of course, there was young adult fiction, right? Um, which got super popular, but eventually people started to push the boundaries, and this created what's called new adult fiction. Okay. And new adult is for older teens, uh, young 20s, you know, basically around the college age, we'll say. Right. For the most part, they're young adult stories, because they're still very simple stories, except now they involve sex and violence. Right. Yeah, I could see that. Maybe there might be elements that are a little more complex, but for the most part, not really. And that's not much of a surprise, of course, because at least half the people reading young adult books they've discovered are actual adults. Right. Not young adults. Like, teens are only reading about half of young adult books that are purchased. The other half are, like, 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds and whatever else. Okay. And that's because they either want those stories that are simple and easy to enjoy, which young adult books often are, or they're looking for something, I guess, that has some of that useful vitality or useful energy, whatever. Yeah, it could be. I'd I'd also suspect that um, it's that they want a story with a little bit more bite, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily what would be considered, like, say, an R-rated story. Right. And that gives you that it has a little bit more of an edge, but not overwhelmingly so. Right. Exactly. And um, a new adult story is basically perfect for them. Yeah. Because it does offer that edge and, you know, that titillation that you want. But it's still that simple young adult. It's, you know, it's basically Harry Potter getting laid. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. That would be called The Magicians by Lev Grossman. Okay. I haven't read them yet, but that's what I've heard basically they are. It's basically Harry Potter goes to college okay. and gets laid and 
you'll actually be familiar with it. They're actually turning it into a, uh, I think it's on sci-fi down the States. They've actually turned it into a TV series. It's due actually out fairly soon. Okay. I might have seen ads for it then, but... You might have. It's The Magician by Magicians by Lev Grossman. It's about a guy who goes to a a magic college instead of a magic high school. Okay. So, yeah, surprise, sex and violence, <laughs> and it's still Harry Potter for the most part. Right. At least, again, that's what I've heard. I'm sure there are members of our audience right now that are screaming, no, it's not, and <laughs> they might be totally right. I'm just talking out my butt here, but <laughs> you that's guys what I've been are told. Suck. It, well, there's that too. Oh, uh, and there goes that member of our audience. Oh, <laughs> oh, and there goes that one. Okay, good going, Don. Now we're down to just one person listening. <laughs> no, sometimes my dad listens too. <laughs> at least, at least he tells you he's listening, whether he really is or not. He's probably asleep in an armchair while uh, it's on in the background. But no, you whatever. Sad. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bring that up. <laughs> I okay. know you love me, Gary. But anyway. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so um, so yes, uh, pulling things back to writing, I guess, uh, where we started on this long and twisty road, uh, long and winding road. There we go. Um, so I think we want to talk about audience expectations a little bit tonight, too. So I, how does that tie in, really? Hmm. Well, it ties, I think that ties right in. Okay, how so? Well, because people, people don't realize they have expectations. Right. Um, the idea of of uh, susp- suspension of disbelief mm-hmm. isn't a one way street. Right. It, like people tend to think that the the writer has to earn it, but the audience has to give some too. You have to meet halfway. Yes, that's true. And that's where the expectations come in, and that's where um, what you've picked up on at different ages and what appeals to you at different ages and the reasons behind that ties in with all. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I know that it's always been your claim that when people say there's no accounting for taste, that that's actually not true, that there is actually accounting for taste. Oh, totally. The tastes all come from somewhere. Yeah. How about you explain that theory for our audience? Well, we, we've already provided the example when you think of superheroes. Right. As a kid, everything is new. Mm-hmm. So you tend to just take things in. Yeah, you don't question it. It's just that's how it is. Mm-hmm. And that's because... That's what your life is. You're going to school and they're saying one plus one is two. And then they demonstrate it and you just come to accept, yeah, when the person up front says something, that's probably true. Right. So when you read a book, when you read a comic, watch a movie, TV, whatever it is, you don't question so much. You're, you're taking it in. You're forming the template that you'll use to question later on. Right. And that's why kids don't question why Lois Lane doesn't recognize Superman when he puts glasses on. That's just how it is. Right. They just automatically accept it. And then as you get older, that carries on. Mm-hmm. So if you're an adult superhero fan, you don't question a lot of things because that template was put in your head when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. I think what ends up happening is you, you'll, you'll question, but only if another mm-hmm. factor comes in. Okay, only if something makes you question that. Yeah, uh, so we talked about the original Avengers movie and the last Superman movie. Mm-hmm. I think the reason a lot of people didn't like the last Superman movie and mm-hmm. harped on things that they let go in the Avengers is because the Avengers had funny stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was entertaining, 
and they let mm-hmm. it slide, whereas the Superman movie was really boring. Mm-hmm. And they questioned more. And because most people aren't skilled critics, mm-hmm. they just sort of focus in on the bigger events. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, the fight scene was horrible and and he shouldn't have killed Zod at the end. Oops, spoilers. Um, whereas the <laughs> Avengers, pretty much the exact same kind of things happen. Mm-hmm. But they let it go because it was funny. Interesting. So what you're saying is is that people who are watching the Superman movie were actually, even though they may not admit to themselves, bored. Yeah. So so they were focusing on all the details. But because they were having such a great time with the Avengers movie, they just let the stuff slide. Yeah. And that's and that's exactly what I think happens. Interesting. So what you're saying is as long as the audience is being entertained and they're kind of happy, they will let stuff go. I mean, they're much more accepting. Yep. And then what entertains hmm. them and makes them happy is based on their tastes and their tastes are based on past experience and expectation. And uh, they've shown you'll like a movie more if you're in a good mood when you go see it than if you're in a bad mood. Mm-hmm. But people don't realize that your emotional state will affect how you perceive things as well. Okay. So that actually, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so, so audiences are willing to accept things much more easily if they're entertained. Yep. Actually, that's a lot like teaching. I've discovered in my time as a teacher that if I can make my class laugh, I can make them entertained as I'm teaching. They're much more likely to accept it. And I find overall they learn better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they pay more attention. Exactly, because they're hoping for the next thing that's going to entertain them. And in between those entertaining bits, I can actually slip in actual (laughs) knowledge and teaching. (laughs) Got to sneak it in there, those damn kids. Mm. Well, actually, that's a standard form I discovered for writing as well, especially if you're going to write stuff with lots of exposition. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, You know who Dan Brown is, right? Uh, Mr. Da Vinci Code, of course. And when I read a couple of his books, one of the things I discovered very quickly is all of his books have the exact same formula. Mm-hmm. And the formula is incredibly simple, but it applies to what we're talking about here. Every chapter begins with the character doing something, and they're about to look into some mystery or some aspect of the story. Okay, so we got characters who are active and they're doing stuff. Then as soon as he gives you something interesting is about to happen, he jumps basically into this gigantic chunk of exposition (laughs) that's connected to what the characters are doing. And, for example, if it's Da Vinci Code, it could be about 13th century French prince genealogy or something like that. (laughs) And he'll go on about that for like five or six pages about this. And it's not boring but it's and it's kind of relevant to the story but at the same time it's you know it's knowledge so to speak yeah and then as soon as that's done he'll finish that chapter with another two or three pages of the character doing stuff that now ties in kind of with that information he's just given you and then that will finish out the chapter preferably on some like question note itself then the next chapter will begin and it will do the exact same thing like i realized as a writing trick, that's one of the most standard tricks there is, which is whenever you're going to give the audience exposition of some kind, especially a big block of it in some form, you have to give them something interesting that they are willing to sit through the information for. It can be about the setting or other stuff. And 
you give them the interesting introduction, you give them the block of information, and then eventually you go back to your story again, to the quote-unquote interesting stuff. Right. And that's how pretty much you sandwich information and stories. Whenever you want to actually give background information, that's generally the better way to do it. Yeah, sometimes it is. Sometimes it, it's, a lot of times it feels unnatural. It depends how good you are at it, but okay. Well, there's that, and I think, again, it's it's like you say, it's it's a standard, so people are used to it. Because mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you know who's terrible for doing that? Who? Shiro. Yes, Masamuni Shiro was pretty bad at that. That's true. The, the, the first Ghost in the Shell movie, mm-hmm. I remember there's a scene where one of their officers is, is under attack. And mm-hmm. the people at the at the the control are like they're using those new hyper blah 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 rounds. Weren't those developed by blah blah? blah? Yes, and they were outlawed by the convention of blah blah blah. And then the guy getting shot at joins in. Yeah, they are. And I'm noticing that the effect is you're being shot at, buddy. Oh my god! It's like again to go back to the superheroes. How you get the fight scene with these giant, huge pieces of dialogue. Hmm. Well, Everybody gets used to that in a comic book, but what would that look like in real life? Blah, 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 punch. Blah, 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 punch. It's totally unnatural. Right. But again, you, you get used to it because that's the template that, that you're presented with, and that's the template that you use to judge whether it makes sense or not. Right, right, exactly. Um, you just get used to it. It can work. I mean, hell, the Japanese do a great job with it sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes, exactly. I mean, if you look at the traditional shonen fight comic, that's pretty much what it is. It's what our mutual friend Chad refers to as the sine wave, where <laughs> you, you get the rising action, and then it will dip down into the plot or background or flashback or whatever else and then it'll rise back out again into the new rising action and this and the story will continue yeah so two ninjas will run at each other and they'll like take a bunch of slashes at each other and then suddenly they'll drop back and they'll both stare at each other panting and suddenly we'll get a flashback to how one of them was trained by his master (laughs) to do the incredible over-the-top like lightning maneuver and how it was really difficult for him, but he persevered. <laughs> and then we'll go back. We'll go back to the present. And then now suddenly he'll realize I can use that maneuver now, just like my master taught me. And they'll fight again, and he'll use that maneuver to defeat the other guy. <laughs> well, of course, the other guy then, who's now panting, will have a flashback to his time when he was hanging out with uh, one of his buddies, who taught him the counter to the lightning maneuver. <laughs> and on it will go for months. Well, if we're talking about Dragon Ball, months or years. Yeah. Well, there's other ones that are... Because every Japanese yeah, comic is Dragon Ball now, so... It kind of has been since the 90s. I mean, yeah. you can't really blame them. I mean, Dragon Ball was the most popular thing ever. Yeah. So, what would you want to do? The most popular thing ever or something else? It depends if I'm in the audience or if I'm the uh, guy who owns the company. This is true. Assuming you're the guy that owns the company, you want lots of Dragon Ball because you never know which one's going to actually be a success. Yeah. And the formula and, works, so. And it absolutely works. It works very well. And they're still using it today for the most part. I mean, Naruto was basically just Dragon Ball with, like, kid ninjas. Yeah. Obviously, Bleach was just Dragon Ball with, ninjas. with no backgrounds. <laughs> ninjas and no yeah. backgrounds. One piece of um, Dragon Ball with pirates. 
you know, that's actually a little tricky though, because One Piece started out truly a hundred percent. One Piece started out as Dragon Ball with pirates. I would never argue that for a second. In fact, it even had Dragon Ball's greatest weakness, which is the main hero, our massive main hero. As soon as they encounter the villain, something happens to take him out of the fight. And then we get a couple dozen <laughs> chapters of all his friends being chased around by the bad guys. And then eventually something happens to revive the main hero, be it Luffy or Goku mm-hmm. or Son Goku or whoever. And then they come in, they kick the bad guy's ass and the story is over. Right. And that was the Dragon Ball formula. And One Piece, when it first started, absolutely did that. But I've noticed that over time... One Piece doesn't really do that anymore. Well, they 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 have the other Dragon Ball problem. I th- oh, which one? Uh, and I think the the guy writing it knows this, and he mit- he does a good job mitigating it. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that the unstoppable villain shows up, and it takes two years to beat him, and then they defeat him, and then like three chapters later, there's an even more unstoppable villain. You're like, where was that guy before? Well, yes and no. Remember Dragon? Sorry. Remember that One Piece has worked very hard to mitigate that, as you say, mm-hmm. where for most of the villains that we're encountering now were literally introduced years ago. Right. Because he set them all up that the great uh, Shichibukai, the great like the great pirate lords or something, pilot warlords or whatever. And then there's the main villain who is probably Blackbeard, who again, was set up like five or six years ago in the story. Mm -hmm. Well, not in the story. Five or six years ago in real life. In the story, two years (laughs) ago or three years ago because of the way the story goes. Yeah. Um, Supposedly, One Piece only has another about six or seven years to run. (laughs) Only. (laughs) Well, you know, it always started in like the mid-90s. Yeah. I mean, when it finishes, I think One Piece is going to be one of the longest-running Japanese comics of all time. Yeah, and then six months later, they'll do, like, the uh, retcon of it. Well, no, they'll do One Piece Kai, where they'll take, <laughs> you know, all, like, 30 seasons of the TV show, and they'll condense them down into, like, four or five seasons. Well, yeah, but then there'll be One Piece Zed, which will be, like, all their descendants, like their kids well, there's right that. now, and... Oh, yeah, that's a pretty much a given, yeah. Then they'll do One Piece the, GT where they go out in space. And... Well, GT doesn't exist anymore. Okay. <laughs> Dragon Ball GT has been officially been gotten out because Dragon Ball GT was the result of Toriyama saying, I'm done, you can do whatever the hell you want with this, with this Dragon Ball crap. I don't care anymore. <laughs> and they said, okay. And so they made Dragon Ball GT. And now Toriyama is back doing Dragon Ball Super, which is running right now. Mm. And supposedly that replaces GT. Okay. In the continuity, you know, because it's this is the real continuity game, whereas uh, GT no longer exists. Supposedly, that's what I'm told by Dragon Ball fans. Although I have noticed that even though people were like insanely looking forward to Dragon Ball Super, mm-hmm. after like the first two or three episodes aired, it has been absolute crickets. Well, no one complains about it. No one talks about it at all, not good or bad. Yeah, because it's your it's your comfortable pair of old sneakers, right? Like it's it's Dragon Ball. It's probably okay, but it's it's just more Dragon Ball. Well, yes and no. I mean, the year before, um, or less than the year before, they introduced Sailor Moon Crystal mm-hmm. came out, and Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball both back at the same time. Yeah. Um, and Sailor Moon Crystal, the fans could not stop 
bitching and complaining about (laughs) that i could not get them to shut up about sailor moon crystal it's like no i don't care people go away but they just people on my facebook feed would just not be quiet about sailor moon crystal now admittedly that some of it was just the way the story was presented because sailor moon crystal is a reboot right? right it's like a it's a closer to the comic version of sailor moon and a lot of people just did not like the way they did it. They didn't like the art style. They didn't like some of the animation. They didn't like the way the characters were presented. It was just a nonstop complaint fest. <laughs> right. Whereas, yeah, Dragon Ball, it's crickets. No one seems to be talking about it at all. Now, I'm sure Dragon Ball fan groups they are, but I don't belong to any of those, so that's fine. Right. But it was leaking into my regular Facebook <laughs> feed and my regular conversations for a while there, and then it just went away. I mean, I watched a little bit of it myself. It was okay. It's, it's, it's as you say, it's more Dragon Ball. Yeah. Duda, duda. Yeah, I think there's. I'm, I'm wondering with the Japanese fans if they do like um, the, mm-hmm. the fans our age, right? For, for Marvel and DC, because I know I was part of a group where um, they, they, they were, they're like my age, because we're old. Anybody listening? Me and Rob, I know, are both like 110 years old. Oh God, yes. <laughs> and when we're talking about those forties, you know, pulp stuff. No, no, we were there, man. Uh, I remember. At least we feel like we were. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for, uh. for a lot of people our age, I know, um, who are fans of the old Marvel DC comics, mm-hmm. a lot of them just bitch and moan about every little change. Mm-hmm. And but that's just them not accepting that time marches on and they're not the target audience anymore though. Yeah, there's that and I think part of it too is because now once you get old your brain doesn't process dopamine as much. Mm-hmm. So you li- literally don't get the high that you did mm-hmm. when you were younger. And then even though they do keep doing reboots, it's the same old stories. They're just polishing them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem too because they're familiar, but not. And it, it goes with that expectation thing. Mm-hmm. That you've got all of the elements that you say you want, but because it's not drawn by George Perez, it's complete and utter crap, and you're raping my childhood. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm, I'm wondering if the Japanese do the same thing, because they're kind of stuck in the same rut as us, and they just keep, like, rebooting stuff and bringing stuff back, and... Oh, hell yes. Um, They're doing, I think, the, what is it, fifth, probably feels like the fifth Yamato reboot just finished. Yeah. Um, There's that, what is it, Devilman versus Cyborg 009 movie is either come out or coming out. I think it's still coming out. I don't think it's out yet. Although that's not exactly a reboot, because I think that that the Japanese have also did uh, something we stopped doing, Mm -hmm. where you get just... We call it a side story, mm-hmm. but it's just yeah. And then this happens. Do it because it's, right. it's the same idea. If you remember in the seventies, Marvel and DC did a bunch of team up books. Yes, that's true. Where like Batman kicks the Hulk's ass, and then it just never gets mentioned again, kind of thing. Seventies, they just did that again. I think like ten years ago. Yeah, but that was one that was supposed to have come, the uh, Justice League versus the Avengers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That was supposed to have come out back in the eighties. Yeah, I remember that. And they ran into all those problems, so they just set it aside. Yeah. But eventually they did it. I'll give them points for that. Yeah. I still didn't bother to read it, but I'll give them points for it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they better late than never, twenty years late, but oh well. Well yeah, and I mean it's it's 
they put it out. I, I'm betting because there were so many of like the old fans who were their their audience since they haven't brought new fans into the comics for the last twenty mm-hmm. years. No, though they haven't have they. No, and then you put something like this out that they've been waiting for since they were fourteen, and it's got all their mm-hmm. favorite characters drawn by all their favorite artists and all their favorite writers. So exactly, and yeah, that was a trend for a little while, bringing back old comics. Uh, one form or another. Sometimes a reboot, sometimes just more new stories, Yeah, depending. They were trying a little bit of everything. And you're right, the Japanese, from what I've noticed, are doing pretty much the same thing. Yeah. I mean, they'll try to bring old stuff back whenever possible. At least they do that for the bigger budget stuff. Right. I mean, the Japanese do have one big, huge advantage over us in the sense that their comic market is still frigging huge. So they can constantly be trying new stuff. They still have that incredible churn of new stuff coming out. Yeah. That's relatively low risk. I mean, putting out a story in Shonen Jump is probably not that much more expensive than it was five or ten years ago. Well, yeah, because it's just somebody draws it and you print it. Exactly. Whereas if you want to put out, say, a movie or a TV series or something, it's much more expensive. It's a much bigger financial risk. Yeah. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons why we're seeing so many anime reboots and anime retreads, whatever you want to call <laughs> them. They're bringing old stuff back constantly because it's a known name and they feel safer bringing it back. Yeah. Just the same reason why we constantly see movies of old American TV series and movies of old movies, etc. Yeah. Again, it feels safe and comfortable from a financial point of view because people loved it last time. They'll love it even more this time. And the sad thing is I think that's true. Right. That the audience wants the same, the familiar, the safe. Right. And that's why, because um, one of the things you always hear people mm-hmm. say is, Hollywood's out of ideas. And then they immediately follow it something to the effect of, a new Batman, who's in it? Oh, boy. Well, when you do that, you're the problem because you're getting excited over the same old stuff again. Right. And how many people excited about the new Batman are like, oh, boy, put the Joker in again. Exactly. Oh, yeah, we just saw the Joker. What, two Batman movies ago? Yeah, and he's in the, uh, the Suicide Squad movie. Yes. Kind of, he's more or less a cameo in the Suicide Squad movie, I've heard. But yeah, he's there. Yeah, because that'll set up his appearance in the next blah, blah. In the next Batman movie, yeah. Well, that's what I've heard, is that the new Batman versus Superman, which originally was supposed to be Superman versus Batman, then became Batman versus Superman, and now it's just playing Batman with Superman at this point. Yeah, because when you look at the uh, the list of actors and what they're playing, it's Batman versus Superman. Oh, God, we need an Avengers. Well, they're doing the reverse Avengers, where they're trying to do a Justice League movie, and then they'll do more or less a individual bunch of individual movies. Yeah. Which, I guess, makes sense. I mean, if you're trying to really, you know, rather than do the Marvel thing, where you have a whole bunch of individual movies, and they eventually come together after, like, a period of four or five years, mm-hmm. you instead... Why not just put them all together right from the beginning and then just spin off a whole bunch of side movies depending on how much people like those characters in the main movie and how well the toys and lunchboxes sell or whatever. Well, you you could do that, but the problem you run into is because you're going to have like 50 named characters in that one movie, you're not going to get a lot of time to do much with them. 
Right. So the audience better love them for their catchphrase the first time you see them, because that's going to be pretty much all they get. That's true. Especially from what I hear in that Superman versus Batman movie, most of the other characters are just literally small cameos. Yeah. The only superhero character I know of that actually is going to get anything more than a cameo in that movie is Wonder Woman, mm -hmm. who actually does show up and fight. Right. But except for her, it's so it's really a Superman versus Batman versus Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman movie. But for some reason, they are just kind of omitting the Wonder Woman from the title because that would make it too long and you know, <laughs> girls are icky or something. Well, and that's one of the things, too, is I, I, I get the impression that they don't know what to do with Wonder Woman. Oh, they absolutely don't know what to do with Wonder Woman. Which is sad because you know what you do? You have her show up and punch something. It's a superhero story. You would think that that uh, would work. <laughs> well, yeah. But, well, they're really nervous about what to do with her. Well, I mean, they would like for her to be a character that they can make movies about and can sell and can be as big as Superman or Batman, but they just kind of don't know how. Well, I, I think, though, that, again, it's inertia. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're like, well, we want to appeal to a female audience. And that was why the TV series they tried doing, she's like the head of a company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because oh, whatever. They don't realize, and this is, I think, goes back to, to the comic book thing and audience expectation and wanting the same old, that mm -hmm. the execs don't realize, no, girls like violence, too. 20 years of Japanese comics and all the female Naruto and Bleach fans are any indication, yeah, girls will watch something where another girl breaks stuff. They're okay with that. They're okay with that, but I don't think... I don't th again, I'm, I'm going to be sexist for a moment here and say, I don't think the violence itself tends to be their focus to the same degree. Well... I would say that they tend to be much more focused on the character aspects of it. I'm not saying they don't enjoy the violence, but I'm saying that a lot of them seem to be a little more into the character side of things. I think you're you're technically right, but I mm -hmm. think the holdup is that the executives are still holding on to like ideas from from the 50s. Because Okay, yeah. You you I can see that. You're absolutely right, but if you look at like the Japanese stuff that had the big female audiences that they, they right. they're not really any more complicated than anything else that's true they do a wonder woman film uh mm -hmm. do it like the old comic they're on the island they become mm -hmm. aware of of the outside world they send her as their ambassador she mm -hmm. sees the city she talks to people she gets to know folks a bad guy shows up she beats the hell out of them the end roll credits mm -hmm. i think that would be perfectly fine you could totally get away and it it's ultimately wouldn't be different from any other superhero movie true but i think but it's not artistic and epic enough apparently well and i think the executives are terrified of that because but, but she's a girl well yeah and it doesn't matter because it's a superhero movie and we're just here to see people punch things but then that's the the backside of of audience expectation because that's creator expectation well Yes, and I think that's one of the big problems with the movies as well. I mean, because there is so much budget involved, there's a lot of expectations about what this movie is going to be like. I mean, they want to make it big and epic, 
so they don't feel comfortable with a story about, yeah, she's on the island and she comes to the man's world and she fights a bad guy. That's something we could see in a TV series. Mm-hmm. I mean, they want to have something that's big and epic and, you know, over the top in some way to somehow, you know, to justify the budget and to also make people presumably feel like they're getting something greater. And the the irony with that is Wonder Woman's really easy to do that with. Who's the bad mm-hmm. guy she beats up on? Ares. He's, yeah, one of the Greek gods, yeah. Well, make it Ares, because he's her antagonist in, in a lot of the comics, especially since the 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. he's, ba- he's basically Thanos for Marvel, who's already out there, and mm-hmm. and it, 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 it writes itself, really. It pretty much does, yeah. And it brings, if you're looking to do the cinematic universe, that brings the idea of the gods in. Mm-hmm. So you've, That's true. you can do the Thor thing. Where now there's the ancient gods who are actually high tech and blah blah blah, or yeah, more or living in their dimension or whatever. Yeah, it, um, it's all right there. It's not that complicated, but it's that idea that they're afraid to do that because that's not typically how you do a female oriented story. No, and they're just not sure about whether that'll work or not. Mm, because if you're a comic person. Mm-hmm. In North America, when you hear comic book, you think superhero. So that Japanese stuff, well, it's a weird thing. I don't know, big eyes or something. And I think that's why they didn't learn the lessons from from when the Japanese stuff hit around 2000. Mm-hmm. Because it, it showed that, no, that formula apparently works pretty well. And half the population is quite okay with that. Ah, but here's the thing. That's not the population that's running Hollywood right now. No, and that's... I mean... Sorry, just to just interrupt for a second. I mean, my students at the college where I teach would definitely not have any problems with anything you're talking about because they grew up on you know Japanese comics and anime and such. So they're to- they'd be totally okay with that. But they are not yet the ones running Hollywood. It's our generation, the uh, Gen Xers, that are currently running Hollywood right now, and they are still stuck in 1980s dark night dark night mode. I mean, the reason that they're desperately trying to make dark DC comics, I would personally say, is at least partly because that's the stuff that they wish they were seeing and that they loved when they were comic fan nerds in the 1980s. Yeah, and more importantly, it's what they're familiar with. Exactly. It's a, it's... That to them is the cool adult story, so that's what they want to do. Yeah, and and that goes to, to what we were saying before about expectation. Mm-hmm, that's true. So each generation has their own set of expectations that they're raised with. And when they get in control of the entertainment media, those are the expectations that they have on the stuff they produce. Yep. And I think what ends up happening is uh, at some point there's a handover mm-hmm. that somebody comes up with the next big thing. Mm-hmm. And that supersedes what came before. And that's why grownups are always, ah, the kids are into this ah, thing. and th- Because it's the new formula that will be what's followed for the next 15 20 years exactly and we're not to the point where the kids that grew up on well the great anime boom of the 90s and aughts are in power yet no but you're you're starting to see that we are because they're starting to do a few more um hollywood remakes of like japanese comics and things they're they're starting to filter in more and more 
and ten, or give it about another 10 years, and then those young people will start to be the real creative minds of Hollywood, and they're going to be ones that grew up on, like, Naruto and Dragon Ball and such, yep. and they're going to be the ones using that template to produce TV shows and movies and whatever else. Yeah, and hopefully by then the kids will have moved on to something else, so that'll be all old hat, and then we get new, and it's not just the same stuff over and over. Ah, but here's the fun part, okay? So that anime generation, we'll call them, we'll call them the gen, they're called millennials, but okay, we'll call the the anime millennials there. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take over, okay? And they'll run Hollywood, and Hollywood will kind of go anime-ish for a little while, right? okay? But then the generation that are right now the ones who are growing up on the Marvel and DC cinematic universes, and that's their template for everything, will get into power, and things will shift back towards American-style superheroes again. Yep. But, of course, the new, the current movie version more than the traditional 80s versions. Yeah. And presumably after them will come, I have no idea, probably another anime generation or something. These things are cyclical. Yeah, and it, it, you never know what's going to what's gonna catch on at any given That's point. true. You can guess, and you can usually make an educated guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Because I know the thing that, that amazes me to talk about uh, comics mm-hmm. is that Marvel and DC are putting out these movies that everyone on Earth is seeing, and their comics have print runs of like 50,000 copies. Yep. That the, mo- all, the movies all... aren't making people buy the books. Oh, yeah, that's true. Although Marvel is trying an interesting strategy. They just announced, I think it was this week, that they are doing um, an Iron Man comic book that I believe is going to be launched simultaneously in like 40 countries around the world. Right. And it's obviously, it'll be the same comic in every country, just in localized to their language. Right. And that's their attempt to actually get people to read comics again and to, to capitalize on the popularity of Iron Man. Of course, it'll be a heavily movie version of the Iron Man character, obviously. Yeah, but they've always done that. True, but they their attempts to put comics into other markets have all traditionally been pretty limited. I mean, they've basically sat there and waited until some local comic company has asked to buy the rights. Right. Whereas now, for one of the first times, they're saying, okay, we as Marvel are going to put out comics in like Russian and Hindi and Chinese and Swahili and Brazilian and local dialect, Spanish, whatever. You you pretty much name it. 40 countries, dude. 40 countries. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to re- and release them all at roughly the same time and see if they can make them work in any of those markets. Yeah, we interested to see how that goes. It will be, actually. I suspect that a good number of them will be failures. The locals just won't be interested. But they might actually open up new comic markets in a couple different countries that didn't really have them before. Yeah. And so that could really be interesting. I know that partly thanks to the internet and partly thanks to just you know, global culture. There are comic cultures in most of the countries in the world, or at least there have been attempts at them anyway. Well, mo- most of them have their their uh, their own version of, of comics. And a lot of them are very different, because I know in the 80s, Marvel tried kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it didn't go over. Right. But that was how you got, like, the, uh, the Japanese Spider-Man comic and stuff. He's Peter Parker with a giant robot because it's Japan and everybody has one. Yeah. 
Supaida Man. Yeah. Yep. No, they tried that, but that was a deal with, I think it was Toei. Yeah. But they did a few because there was also a Hulk. Yes. And I, Wait, there was a Japanese Hulk? Yeah. It's really, um, it's really, it's really hard to explain because he cries a lot in it. <laughs> Okay, I knew about the Spider-Man. No, I know there's there's only a Hulk comic, right? We're not talking about a Hulk TV series or anything. Yeah, but that was Marvel was was trying to to get their comics in other countries. Right. Yeah. Well, they were trying for Japan because Japan being a big market at the time. Yeah, and Marvel themselves also did a U, the UK. Right. Oh yeah, there was Marvel UK. Yeah. That's true. And then there was like you were saying, there were a lot of other places. So like say uh, South America, there were companies that were publishing Marvel comics. But it was a different company that was doing it. It wasn't actually Marvel. Right. Yes. As far as yeah. As far as I know, the UK and Japan were the only places it was actually Marvel doing it. Well, Marvel, but I think UK was actually Marvel UK, but I think Japan was actually with a local company. I don't think they were working alone. They were partnered with a local partner. Yeah, but I think what it was is they um the the company actually producing the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't think they 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 weren't Marvel, but they were they were affiliated, right? Because I know there was an exchange, there was a back and forth, right? Okay, hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they did a whole lot of projects because I know about Toei one, of course, because that's where we get like the Super Sentai and everything, right? Yeah. Um, Which is... the original one was it Go Go Ranger? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's where we get Go Ranger, which was originally supposed to be like a avengers type tv series yeah and um which is weird but okay <laughs> yeah wait was it go ranger that was supposed to be the avengers or was it there was another one was there jack was it no i think go ranger was the first of what we would consider like a sentai show go ranger was the first sentai show but i'm trying to remember there was another series that i'm totally blanking on right now where because one is like battle france one's like battle miss america battle fever battle j france, battle fever j there it is that's the one that was really that's right go ranger was the first sentai mm -hmm. but they followed it up with battle fever j which was actually originally intended to be a, a japanese avengers series yeah but it because of go ranger's popularity they kind of it kind of became something that was more along the lines of a Go Ranger series, basically another yeah. Go Ranger series. And I remember that now that's pretty much how it went, which is really weird, but sure. Okay. Yep. Well, I mean, they looked at it and said, well, we can't really afford to do a proper Avengers TV series. And our audience loves this, you know, Go Ranger type stuff. So let's do that. <laughs> and, if I remember right, I don't think Battle Fever J was even originally considered a Sentai series. That's actually a bit of a retcon. Yeah. When it came out, it was by the same company, and it was the same people doing it, Toei. Yeah. But I don't think they officially considered it a Sentai series until much later. Yeah, but it 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 was. They had like the robot and. Oh yeah, yeah they did. They had the team and. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen some episodes of Battle Fever J. It's not bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, for a 70s Sentai series. Right. Um, although, again, you know, when I say it that way, it makes it sound like, you know, I'm mocking it or something like that. For what it is, it's actually fairly well done. It's actually fairly entertaining. And in fact, if anything, it has a little more of an edge to it than a lot of the later stuff would. Yeah. Well, that's probably because 
by the time you got to the later stuff, they perfected the formula. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it had been much more kidified later on. Yeah. Whereas it was still a little more general audience when Battle Fever J came on. Yeah, I could and see so that. you got so you got guys getting like gunned down by machine guns and things like that, which were common in seventies Japanese live action tokusatsu superhero stuff. Yeah, but later on they would try to minimize that kind of thing because you know violence and kids and everything else. Yeah, although for some reason uh, the the nut kick seems a really popular attack form in a lot of those shows. Oh, it was. The nut kick was absolutely popular. Oh, what was the one? It was uh, Jetman. Mm-hmm. Where the evil robots show up and, uh, was it Condor? It's kicking them in the nuts and you're like, who builds their robots with testicles? The Japanese do, dude. Yeah, the Japanese do. That is so unfortunate. I mean, it? yeah, it is. It is. Anyway, uh, we should wrap this thing on up. Okay. So... So I guess our final conclusion is who builds robots with testicles. That's right. That's that's where we're gonna. That's the one we're gonna end this show yeah, on. And they did that in Red Baron too. The robot mini, minions. If you kick them in the chunk, their heads explode. Okay. <laughs> Red Baron is a messed up show. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Okay. <laughs> Wait, you've got a set, you've got a copy of Red Baron? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they're like five bucks on Amazon. So. Okay. So you bought a yeah? I've got a copy too. Red Baron, yeah, Red Baron's the one with uh, oh, Inspector Umbrella or whatever he's bicycle called, right? Or bicycle Inspector, Inspector. Yeah. yeah, Bicycle Inspector, yeah, yeah, yeah. I only watched a couple episodes, but I, I'd been, I'd heard it like, oh, it's this really cool Sentai show, and then I watched that and watched uh, Bic- Inspector Bicycle <laughs> wandering around the screen and thought, yeah, this is not exactly what I was signed up for. Well, man, you have to watch more. It just gets stranger as it goes on. I bet it does. I bet it does. Okay, so thanks for listening, everyone. Um, please tune in in two weeks for our next episode when we'll talk about something. Yeah, it works. Probably a whole lot of things. <laughs> and until then, stay frosty. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. If you want show notes or to tell us why we're wrong, head on over to obeythedna.com and join the discussion. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend. And remember, to master the nerdly arts takes time, perseverance, and a whole lot of nachos. Do not be discouraged, for you too can be a light in the darkness. See you next time!